Well, for the past several weeks, um, we have been exploring what it means to be in the Wesleyan heritage or to be Methodist. And we're doing that uh, because we have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church, but as we search for a way forward and maybe who to affiliate with, a lot of people say, well, we want to keep the name Methodist. Well, great. What's a Methodist? Well, we've been studying that and we've been talking about it. And, uh, but before I begin today, uh, let me ask a question. It's a rhetorical question, so please don't offer to answer, because I really don't want to hear. Have you ever done anything you've regretted? See why I don't want to hear? Yes, I really don't want to know those stories. Have you ever been hurt by somebody so badly that it caused you to act in a way that you came to regret? Truly rhetorical, I think we've probably all been there. But I ask that question because today we're going to look at Methodism and the sacrament of Holy Communion. And we're going to explore something that a young John Wesley did that I believe he came to regret. In fact, his regret and his change of heart has shaped Methodism for over 250 years. As I mentioned the last couple of weeks, when Wesley was a young man, he was a missionary pastor to the British colony in Georgia. And uh, as a clergy in the Church of England, Wesley had the authority to refuse the sacrament to anybody that he deemed unfit or unworthy. And this was and still is the practice in many churches, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but a number of Protestant churches as well, where the pastor can refuse the sacrament to somebody he feels or she feels is unfit to receive the sacrament. It might be somebody who has not taken a membership class. It might be somebody that they simply believe is living an unfit life. But back to John Wesley and his time as a missionary pastor in the colonies. On the long voyage over from England, and his trip was extremely long, almost three months on a ship, Wesley fell in love with a young girl named Sophie Hopke. Have y'all heard this story? Well, this is the juicy one, so just hang on. He fell in love with a young woman named Sophie Hopke. Uh, the story's a bit complicated. I can't get into the whole thing today, but suffice it to say that their relationship cooled off a little bit, and suddenly Miss Hopke was engaged to somebody else. Well, the very next Sunday... When it came time for the congregation to receive communion, guess who the pastor, who was John Wesley, refused to serve communion to? Yeah. See, you go to Wesley Memorial Church, some of you have gone here for decades, and you never heard this story. you got to have the good and the bad people, so we're just going to lay it out there today. So anyway, uh, John Wesley refuses to serve communion to Sophie Hopke, and you know what the real problem was? is that Sophie's uncle was the chief magistrate of the colony. That's sort of like the governor, okay? And uh, so Wesley got, uh, uh, he had 10 charges against him, and he had to go face a grand jury. Yeah, and two-thirds of the grand jury worked for the chief magistrate. Yeah, this is, this, it's in the history books. You can read about it. Anyway, uh, fortunately for Wesley, the trial became a mistrial, but look, he saw the writing on the wall, and he got on the next ship back to England. 
Well, eventually Wesley would come to know in his heart that refusing anyone the sacred opportunity to receive communion was wrong. And I believe this because later in life, John Wesley made receiving Holy Communion one of the defining characteristics of Methodism. In fact, the early Methodist revival has often been called a revival of the sacraments. In the early days of Methodism, the people called Methodists, and the reason I say the people called Methodists is because they weren't a separate denomination yet, okay? In the early, they were still part of the Church of England. That sort of changed after the Revolutionary War when it wasn't really, you know, in fashion to be part of the Church of England. But in the early days of Methodism, uh, the people called Methodists would receive communion twice a week. And John Wesley reportedly received communion four to five times a week. But more so than the number of times that they received communion, the distinctive Methodist characteristic was the fact that the Methodists did not prohibit anybody from receiving the sacrament. And that drew a lot of criticism from the Church of England and other religious communities of faith because that wasn't what the religious people would do. But Wesley and the people called Methodists made it their practice to have what we call an open communion table, and we still observe that today. We have an open communion table because it's not the pastor that does the inviting, and it's not the church that invites you to have communion. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. Through his life and through his death, and through his resurrection, Jesus invites us to himself. And so let's take a look at what the traditional invitation to communion looks like. It says, Christ our Lord invites to his table the good church folk. No, he invites all who love him and who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. And this is great news. And this is basically what the apostle Paul was telling the church in Corinth when he, when he wrote this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I read from it last month when we had communion, but let's revisit it. He says, In the following instructions I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. If you didn't know, that sarcasm, he was shaming them. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly I will not praise you for this. So I uh, explained that it last month. Y'all all remember that, right? Somebody shake their head. Just thank you. Thank you. You weren't here. So why'd you shake your head? No, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Basically, in a nutshell, these people would, uh, they'd have all the people that had this gift. They'd sit over here and have communion. They'd have people that had this gift. Maybe the educated were over here and they'd have their own communion. So they were, they were segregating themselves for communion. And Paul says, how can you be having communion when you're not communing with one another? And, and there's something he says there in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. 
He says, I hear that there are divisions among you as you meet as a church. And that's an interesting word in the New Testament. Did not refer to a building. The word that we translate as church is ecclesia. And, and ecclesia means an assembly, but not just any assembly. Because ecclesia, we get the word eclectic from this word ecclesia. And eclectic means coming from a broad and diverse range of sources. So in a church setting, you and I who are the ecclesia means that we are people that come from many different walks of life. There should be, there should be people of different races and social statuses and economic classes. We are different, but it's the spirit that brings us together. And even with an eclectic group, Paul says we can be one body. He says that in chapter 12. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So he's telling these people that we're over in this group, in this group, hey, you're all part of the same body. Well, the people that he was writing to really weren't being part of one body. They weren't sharing. Um, and, but, but what Paul is telling us is this. We must check our attitudes towards others before we come to communion. Now, when I say towards others, I'm not just talking about the people that maybe you came to church with this morning, and I'm not even talking about the people as you look around this, this room. When I say others, I mean, you know, you know who the others are besides you? Every person in the world is another. Every person in the world is another. The world is filled with others. And you and I must check our attitudes. Do you got an attitude towards African Americans? Do you have an attitude towards Mexican immigrants? Better check your attitude before you come here. You have an attitude towards Muslims? Check your attitude before you come here. In Corinth, they were letting their differences separate them. But as a church, as an ecclesia, we have differences by God's design. We're not supposed to be the same. Look, I've been in churches where they're all the same. And it wasn't a church. It was a club. That's all it was. Churches in which everybody's the same generally don't grow. They don't accomplish much kingdom of God work because they only want people that are like them in the church. But God brings us differing people, different levels of education, different ages. We're from different communities. We're, we have different interests. We have different goals. And God brings us together so that we can be the ecclesia, the eclectic group of people called the church. And God's vision for our church is so much larger than our vision. Well, what was happening in Corinth was similar to what was happening in the church in England during the days of John Wesley. During the days of John Wesley, and it's still in the world today, there were churches of rich people. But the poor people would go to this church over here. And educated people and uneducated people. And the churches, maybe not within them, but they were all the same within them. And so the churches were segregated. But the crazy Methodists, they were starting churches, called them chapels. They were starting churches and bringing all of these different groups together. 
And every time these different groups would come together, whether for Bible study or worship, every time they would have communion because they wanted to show the world that even though they were different, they were one body in Christ. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we need to reclaim our Methodist heritage. We must remove all of the attitudes that we have towards others. In other words, we must lose the focus on ourselves, and like Christ, focus on others. Well, we look again at this invitation. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. And this is a requirement. Maybe, maybe you haven't been living peacefully with others. And maybe, maybe others wouldn't even know it. It's just, you know, things you say about them or the way you act about them. But you know what? It doesn't matter. If today you repent of that and seek to live in peace, then, then you're welcome to share communion. Because this communion table is not about what you've done in your past. This communion table is about what Jesus Christ has done in your past for you. And I want you to know that just coming forward for Holy Communion doesn't make you any better than anybody else. You could receive communion every single day, but if you didn't have the right attitude, there'd be no benefit because it wouldn't be the Lord's Supper you're having. And this is why the people called Methodists wanted to have communion a lot. Because if having communion caused them to check their attitudes towards other people, then they knew they needed frequent communion. How often do you think we should check our attitudes against others, about others? Yeah. Don't you think frequent communion is a good thing? If it really causes you, I hope so, because you're about to have it a lot this year. Well, at least during the season of Lent. In the scripture passage, Paul goes on to share what he received from the Lord. It's in verse 23 following. I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. He broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So John Wesley and the people called Methodists knew that it was important to receive communion frequently because of the remembrance. It's important because we remember that we are redeemed children of God, ransomed through the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and this is, uh, Michelle read this, it's my favorite passage of scripture. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. Not a one of us, not a one of us has been good enough to be saved. Not one of us. But it's the gift of God and not by works and no one can boast. We can't boast. We can't boast. See, I look around the sanctuary and I see moms and dads and I see grandmas and granddads and I see teachers and I see students and I see laborers and I see business people and in our mind that's how we identity identify ourselves but in Christ that's not your identity our identity as a Christian comes through the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Savior therefore our, our identity is all the same 
It's all the same. That'll make you check your attitude. We're redeemed children of God, and we need to remember this. And here's my, actually, you know, Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite. This is my favorite passage of Scripture, and I just want to read it for you this month from the New Living Translation. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 38, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what he was really saying? God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he loves everybody, people. And we're no better. Well, back to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an arrangement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. And so, the bread and the cup reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And it also reminds us that we are called to sacrifice for one another. In the early years of Methodism, uh, they would, beyond what they gave the church, they would sacrifice things in their life so they could give to the ministries of, of the Methodists. Uh, for example, back then, without refrigeration and whatnot and preservatives, you would go to the market early in the morning, you'd buy your food for that day. And once or twice a week, these people would be skipping either a day of food or a meal here and a meal there. And that money that they saved, while it wasn't a tremendous amount, they would give to the ministry of Jesus Christ through the Methodists. And all these Methodists were given, and so it raised a lot of money. But it was a sacrifice. And communion reminded them to make that sacrifice. And communion needs to remind us to make that sacrifice. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. And we read that, we listen to that, and we know it's Jesus telling us. So in our mind, the context is Jesus dying for us. And that's not wrong. That's certainly correct. But for us, laying down our life simply means that we're going to set aside our desires. We're going to set aside the focus that we have on ourselves. And we're going to sacrifice for others. Back to 1 Corinthians 11. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I spoke about this recently as well. We proclaim the Lord's death, yes, because the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ saved us from the power of our sins. And we're going to proclaim that and we're going to celebrate it. A lot of people say we're going to have communion today. No, we're going to celebrate communion. Because it's worth celebrating that Jesus died for us. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, Dr. Lisa Long convinced me that I need to touch on this verse again. Because uh, it is really one of the most misunderstood verses of scripture in Paul's letters. And it's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, First from the King James. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. I guess if you're not worthy, you can't come forward, huh? 
1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 in the NIV, whoever eats the bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. I want to tell you what that does not say. It does not say that if you are unworthy, you can't have communion. Because if the requirement was you got to be worthy to have communion, nobody would ever have communion. Nobody is worthy on their own. Here's what this verse means. If we take communion thinking we're worthy, you know, because I have this gift or because I'm educated or because I give this much. If you take communion believing you're worthy of receiving the grace of God, then you are partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. So we've got to come forward knowing what this table represents. We've got to come forward in humility. We've got to come forward celebrating. We've got to come forward checking our attitudes and making sure that we're trying to live peacefully with all others. With all others. 